Hey, does anybody remember that old Girl Scout song? Then it went something like this. Make new friends, but keep the old one is silver and the other gold. You know, I wanted to buy about a dollar's worth of gold, but huh, never mind. I couldn't even find a scale that went down that fine. You know, at 1700 an ounce, when you round it, a dollar's worth of gold is about 0.6 thousandths. Hey, make new friends, but keep the old, cause one is silver and the other gold. You know any Girl Scouts? When you were a kid? Not now. When you were a kid? Hey, make new friends, but keep the old, cause one is silver and the other gold. Make new friends, make new friends. Can I have a fade out here? Make new friends. Get her done. Interesting. Poop lasagna. It's so juvenile, I can't help but laugh. Hear ye, hear ye, all ye who hear this here podcast, know this. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The hosts hold no licenses and are not financial advisors. Do your own research before making investment decisions, and we do hope you enjoy this podcast. All right. We're ready to go. Montana Skeptic, welcome back to TC's Charcast. So great that you could join us. Thanks for having me. A real pleasure to be with both of you. Yes, while well, you were our, our uh, first guest ever on the podcast, and uh, we were joking before we started recording that we're basically, uh, we're shilling for ratings right now. You're, you're such, a big, <laughs> such a big hit for our, for our audience and for our numbers that uh, we figured it was time to bring you back. You know, as, as the uh, stay-at-home quarantine has continued to progress, there's far less commuting, and so I was talking to a few other podcast hosts. It's uh, hurting everybody's numbers, and so we thought the anecdote for, for that would be to bring, bring back the legend. Um, since everybody knows you and you've been on the show before, we'll skip the deep sort of personal intro um, that we typically do. But let's go ahead and get started. Um, you know, we've got a lot of things to cover today. Some, the latest news in Tesla, some, some legal stuff, um, your latest article in Seeking Alpha and what you want to do sort of post-Tesla. Um, but let's begin with the, with the latest nonsense that's going on with Tesla. We're recording this on Friday, likely to be released um, Monday morning, depending again on, on our edit cycle. Uh, but let's talk ventilators. Um, this has been all the rage on social media. Uh, Elon has been engaging in a Twitter back and forth with various reporters and skeptical blue check marks. Um, what's going on with Tesla and the ventilators? Well, it's it fits a pattern, doesn't it? I probably won't get these in chronological order, and I'll probably omit a few. But we remember uh, his response to the hurricane in Puerto Rico some years back where he was going to re-electrify the island. Today, they are struggling to find someone to maintain the the inadequate solar system that he put in there that's not functioning correctly. Um, when the, the Flint, Michigan water problems became a hot item in the press, he jumped in again as hero, was going to single-handedly solve it. We later learned he made a small cash donation 
uh, took no other steps. With the California wildfires, of course, uh, he promised some extravagant relief for the people who were affected by them. To my knowledge, none of that has happened. With, um, of course, famously, when the world was riveted to the news about the boys trapped in the cave in Thailand, it was crucial for him to step forward, to suck up all the oxygen in the room, to make sure that all the major media were reporting how Elon Musk, the visionary of our time, had assembled a crack team of engineers uh, who were developing a, a mini submarine that was going to be flown to Thailand and would assist in the rescue of these boys, would be instrumental in it. We know now that he uh, leaned on the Thai government to make sure that it spoke glowingly of his efforts. That, of course, all led to the Vern Unsworth lawsuit. And, of course, it led to revelations that the mini-sub would never, ever have worked. I think Musk famously promised he would bring it to Thailand to prove that it would work. He's never done that, of course. He knows better than to do it. So now with the with coronavirus having become the biggest story of them all, it is important for him to be the hero. Though, if you think about it, he wasn't always so concerned about coronavirus, was he? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, he's, uh, I believe that this is just one big search engine optimization retro fitting exercise. Um, so ironically, and I, I, I follow this pretty closely. I've talked about this in other podcasts. Um, if you go today and search, you know, Elon Musk coronavirus, what you'll find is nothing but glowing stories about donations, about ventilators. But in fact, uh, this goes all the way back to January where he was quite skeptical on Twitter and called coronavirus panic dumb and compared the coronavirus to the common cold. And you can follow that path of uh, being um, wrong, I think, on the issue and, and offsides on the issue all the way to keeping the plant running when a sheriff had ordered him to close it for the better part of a week in late March. And I think that's suddenly when he got um, saw the light and realized that he'd made a pretty big mistake and uh, has been retroactively trying to correct it. But as is his way, um, we knew we knew from the beginning that uh, what he was promising wouldn't be delivered. And it kind of feels like Groundhog Day for us, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I do go back to January 31, which is an interesting day. I believe that was the day that Trump shut down travel from China. And who is it that must dance to the tune of the Chinese overlords these days? Why, it's Elon Musk. And so what does he tweet out on March, excuse me, January 31st? He, he says, the coronavirus is, you know, no more virulent, I think is what he said, uh, than, a, than the, a common cold. He compared it to a common cold. It says not even, a, not even like a flu. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's harmless. And then he continued to deride all the efforts throughout February, saying that they were the consequence of panic. When, as we know, you know, Trump is being criticized, perhaps rightly so, for not acting quickly enough, uh, Musk is assuring his 32 million followers that this is all a big nothing. And this goes on right up through March when um, the health authorities in five or six California counties, including Alameda County, where the Fremont plant is located, order that all non-essential businesses shut down. And Tesla at that point begins fencing about whether they are or are not non-essential. They don't shut down. They keep their plant running for four or five days thereafter until finally they cannot abide any further pressure from the authorities and they close it down. And Trump, excuse me, I sometimes say Trump when I mean Musk and vice versa. Um, you know, this attracted some adverse 
publicity for Musk. And so it was important for him now to completely change the narrative so that when you look for Elon Musk and coronavirus, you will learn not that he was a coronavirus denier from the start. You will instead see that he is this brilliant hero who stepped forth with an offer to find, to manufacture, excuse me, to manufacture ventilators. Uh, and in the meantime, I think he secured, he claimed to have secured a thousand plus ventilators. It later turned out, I think from China, um, no surprise. And of course, it now turns out that they are not ventilators at all. At least most of them are, are you know, like sleep apnea machines, which there's at least a heated debate about whether they are unsafe for people who are suffering from coronavirus or people who are treating those who are suffering. So um, I, that sort of catches us up to where we are. Musk, once again, very badly wishes to be the hero. This time, there are a few more of the so-called blue check marks in Twitter who are skeptical about his story. He's been called out on it by someone at CNN. He famously attacked CNN a day or two ago after Gavin Newsom uh, said that he had not seen any ventilators from Tesla and, uh, and CNN reported that. So Musk attacked CNN. Hilariously, Eric Trump Jr. jumped in, or excuse me, is it Eric or Eric Jr.? The, the Trump son jumped Eric in Trump. to defend, uh, yeah. yeah, to defend um, Musk and said, you're so right, CNN is just fake news. So you have that strange alliance happening. Just uh, utterly bizarre stuff. And, uh, but as you said, if you search for Elon Musk, uh, coronavirus, you're likely to read a story about his heroics with ventilators. You know, on this topic, there have been a number of folks commenting that this discrepancy between what was promised and what is actually being delivered is starting to get the attention of more blue check marks. Um, I'm skeptical about that and, and the effect of that. I'd be interested in your take. I mean, this is, as you said, it's it's right out of his playbook, you know, promise big and under deliver. And within the Tesla cult and the Elon called it, it's also falling right into the pattern of, you know, have full faith, unwavering faith in Elon, don't doubt Elon, and also don't believe any of the promises that he makes. He won't make them how he said he will, but he will get there eventually. And there still seems to be a tremendous amount of um, at least he's doing something sort of uh, support. You know, he's doing something. What are you doing? And I'm pretty skeptical that some of this additional attention from um, perhaps more of the mainstream media and, and the blue check marks is actually going to have much of an impact um, because he has so, you know, solidly demonstrated his ability to conduct the tenor of the PR machine. Um, am I wrong? What do you think uh, about is the tide changing? I know we don't know, but, uh, you know, you've been watching this a long time. I'm interested to see how you're reading this tape. We don't know. I, I think maybe at the margins, it changes a little bit. And, you know, the Eric Trump tweet, as I said, uh, when that happened, um, you know, that's a lot of cognitive dissonance for a lot of his supporters. So I, I asked what happens when blind love runs headlong into blind hatred. Um, you know, at the margin again, maybe some of that starts to matter. But I, as you both know, I was on an, uh, a, a broadcast a few weeks back with AutoLine, with very knowledgeable auto industry people. 
And um, those auto industry people, including the auto correspondent in Detroit for Bloomberg, David Welch, very bright and informed guy, recited to me the Tesla bull case. And it included so many things that were plainly wrong, just plainly myths that had been spun by Musk and are widely believed. And uh, it's that he has had so much adulation endlessly in the media. He has been able to sell these stories. Uh, and uh, so I, I think we have to all be skeptical that it's going to end anytime soon. People are credulous. People are hideously ill-informed. The Tesla Q crowd is tiny. Most people are completely unaware of the vast chasm between what Musk has promised and what he has delivered. Most people are unaware of the brilliant website Elon Musk Today, for example. So I, I'm with you, Georgia. I think it's uh, I'm I'm skeptical that this makes much of a dent. Well, and let's not forget, a lot of people have made a lot of money in this run up uh, that has occurred since the coronavirus panic is dumb tweet. You know, the stock has, you know, we're flirting with 800 again, which is hard to believe. And so those that have been able to hop on that rocket ship uh, are probably pretty pleased with Elon right now. Yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about that, uh, Montana? You know, I, I, and before we do, I just say I, I was on a podcast myself earlier this week. Uh, it's called Chit Chat Money. It's a podcast directed towards uh, young sort of college graduate level investors. And they had me on to make the bear case in Tesla. And if the audience is interested in listening, they can find it on Apple Chit Chat Money. And they did a wonderful thing, which is they just systematically presented the, the bull case to me and allowed me to um, destroy it with logic and facts. And it was kind of fun. Um, but as we've learned, uh, and as all the stock price bros in the world will continue to remind us correctly, uh, none of it matters. Um, and so I'm curious to get your thoughts on the current stock price. And I, I put out a chart yesterday that I made from Bloomberg, which showed that the... Um, the analyst estimates for 2020 gap net income have been slashed from around 440 a share down to minus 40 cents a share. And in, in the time that Tesla stock has doubled and then some, um, the slashing of the estimates to net income had gone from around, you know, plus uh, 800 million to, you know, minus 50 to 100 million. It's going to be way, way, way more of a gap loss than that by the time we're done. But that's just the where we are on the on the annual tradition of analysts slashing their front, their front contract um, earnings estimates for Tesla. So can you imagine that um, they're not making any cars in Fremont? They're not selling hardly any cars in the US or Europe. They are making some cars in a new factory in a swamp in Shanghai. Um, who knows what's going on in New York? The uh, Gigafactory in Nevada is ostensibly closed. Uh, and yet the stock doubles uh, on basically nothing. What is, is, I would argue this is more absurd than the initial run up to 960. What do you think? Well, I've, I've become so inured to the idea that the stock price has absolutely nothing to do with the fundamentals of the business, that it, nothing, none of this surprises me any longer. Okay. We have this uh, well-established pattern, of course, of analysts making estimates for next year or the year after being the year where Tesla becomes profitable. That was supposed to be 2019 with the Model 3 in full-throated production. And of course, they lost $862 million last year. The, you know, hope springs eternal in the analyst's breast, I guess. And 
uh, and people just want to believe all this. I've, there are several theories about what's going on. One is, well, okay, so Tesla's hurting, so we're going to just skip 2020. Let's ignore that it happened because the other automakers, they're going to hurt even more, and this is going to be more devastating for them. And so Tesla will emerge, ironically, as the clear leader in EVs in the world, and this will solidify and cement its position. And I think that was along the lines of what the Credit, Credit Suisse analyst said a few days ago. You know, I... It's certainly true that all automakers are being pummeled right now. The idea that Tesla is better situated than the others to survive this seems to me to be highly fanciful. There is still going to be a Volkswagen group when we emerge from this. There's still going to be a GM. There's still going to be a Ford. There's still going to be a Daimler. There's still going to be a Bavarian Motor Works. You're going to have... Um, vigorous competition that will still there still be a Volvo. So, you know, that the, the competition isn't going away. The idea that it's going away is is foolish. I agree with you. The stock price now is more detached than ever from the actual fundamentals because I think people also underestimate how devastating this shutdown is to so many people who are stretched out on their budgets, who are going to have a hard time making lease payments on their cars. We're going to think long and hard about expensive purchases. And let's face it, EVs cost a lot more than a similar internal combustion car. There are going to be a lot of governments that have to think hard about whether they can afford some of the subsidies and rebates that they've been offering. For example, California, I believe it has a rebate if you buy an EV. They uh, were looking at having a $17 billion surplus this year. The latest stories are that they're now fearful that the deficit will be double that, you know, closer to $35 million in a deficit. This is going to change the behavior of a lot of people, but it, right now, none of that matters. And, um, you know, that's where we are. We're at a place, it's, we can talk about all the things that would matter if this were some other company, but ultimately it, it, it at least right now it's we're, we're sort of having the conversation among ourselves the investors don't care you know this uh philosophy that the global slowdown over coronavirus is only going to strengthen tesla because they have the premier position in the ev market is is preposterous i mean the automotive market is cyclical as it is and was heading into a, a down cycle coming into this. And the thought that Tesla, which is completely non-diversified in the automotive market, um, in a time of very low oil, in a time of very low consumer spending, um, that they're, you know, in the in the catbird seat is just ludicrous. Um, I, I agree exactly with what you're saying. Um, let's actually pivot to something different in the Tesla sphere right now, which is the uh, ruling that just came out on uh, related to the 420 tweet, the funding secured taking private tweet, which feels like a complete age ago. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, Tesla had filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. And what came out on the 15th earlier this week was uh, the judge's denial of that uh, motion to dismiss. Can you walk us through uh, some of the high points and then we can uh, dig into some of the detail afterwards? Sure. So after um, the funding secured 
episode in August of 2018, a number of lawsuits were filed in federal courts around the United States. I, I think mostly in California, there were seven, six or seven different lawsuits, all purporting to be class actions. And it, it, the plaintiff's lawyers then began to duke it out as to who would be the lead plaintiff and hence lead plaintiff's counsel. Okay, that's uh, a fight that frequently will take place in class actions. So this case got lost in the weeds for a long time while that battle was going on. That finally got resolved, I believe, late last year when the court appointed a lead plaintiff. And that lead plaintiff filed uh, an amended complaint to capture all of the uh, of the pleadings of the different people who are now part of the class, which includes people who lost money because they were invested long in Tesla and includes people who lost money because they were short when the announcement was made and they had to cover their short based on the stock um, uh, ascent that, that happened in the wake of the, of the uh, tweet. And uh, Tesla filed a motion to dismiss this, making a, a bunch of arguments that are fascinating. By the way, the defendants are Elon Musk personally, Tesla, the company, and the directors of Tesla. And, um, you know, they, they made a number of arguments. They said, first, that it was not a misrepresentation. What Elon said was not a misrepresentation for purposes of law. And even if it was, that was Musk, not Tesla. He wasn't acting on behalf of Tesla. He was acting as an individual bidder. And even if those things aren't true, uh, the plaintiffs can't possibly prove loss causation. They can't prove that the tweets and then the uh, information that was used to correct them later are what caused their losses. And then the director defendant said, and even if none of that is the case, we should not be liable because, hey, we didn't approve of these tweets. And he was off on his own to being a rogue. So those were the contentions in the court. Uh, and a motion to dismiss is, it's, it's uh, let's remember what it is, that, that basically the defendants are saying the plaintiff hasn't adequately pled these things. You should dismiss his petition because even if everything in it is true, that doesn't add up to a cause of action. And so the federal court looks at the elements of the claim, which in this case was 10b5 fraud, you know, materially misleading statements and omitting materially important information. And in the case of directors, it was so-called 20A liability for, as you know, the people who are supposed to control Elon Musk. And they say, have you adequately pled these elements under our rule? And um, further, the plaintiffs had a, another hurdle to jump over under something called the um, Private Securities Litigation Reform Act from, I don't know, two decades ago. There are very heightened pleading standards. The bar is set a lot higher when you allege securities fraud. You have to show some the, 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 uh, the pleadings on the fraud itself have, are subject to heightened scrutiny. You have to be very detailed with your facts. I think you might remember that the, uh, the lawsuit involving the Model 3 failed for that reason. They could not overcome those high pleading requirements of the uh, Private Securities Litigation Reform Act. So that's what was going on in this opinion. And we, we can, that's, that's sort of the introduction to what happened. So Montana, before we get into the details of it, just maybe at the face, one 
logical question that could be asked was, uh, would be how would Tesla and Elon Musk even pass the red face test on this motion to dismiss, given the settlement that Elon had to make with the SEC uh, after the fact, wherein he could no longer deny that he, uh, you know, didn't commit any fraud related to this tweet and paid the settlement both on his behalf and the company's to kind of have this swept under the rug. Given that settlement, how do you then turn on the heel and and put this motion to dismiss forward? It's interesting that you ask that because I I read the um, the brief that the defense counsel had filed, and I was my reaction was if this were my case and I were defending it, I would never file this motion because it is such a sure loser, number one. And number two, all I'm going to do is educate the judge about the governing law and get him dug in on the case um, early. But they did it. Uh, I, I, maybe I just lack adequate chutzpah or something uh, it is, it's the, you know, how Elon Musk loves to gaslight his critics. This is gaslighting uh, of, of the plaintiffs and the plaintiff's counsel and the court. And the court didn't buy it, of course. But um, I had the same question, Georgia, but there it is. And now we have a result. And this, you know, what's interesting is that what really hurt Elon most in this is, um, a, the SEC lawsuit, because the SEC lawsuit developed evidence and had very detailed pleadings, the plaintiffs had a lot more evidence that they could sink their teeth into when they made their own allegations so they could meet that heightened pleading requirement. And um, also the court said, you know, in evaluating one of the arguments was, hey, they can't prove scienter, they can't prove that I knew the thing I was doing was really bad. Elon, Elon made that argument. Sure, maybe I, I misrepresented it, but I did it in good faith uh, because this was aspirational. And the court said, look, look, the fact that you settled with the SEC so quickly is among the factors we can consider in Scienter. And it supports uh, the, the plaintiff's story here that you knew exactly what you were doing was wrong. And a quick settlement is, in, is indicia of that under settled case law. And also the fact that Elon Musk you know, so vigorously and repeatedly attacked the shorts and 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 uh, goaded them. The court cited all that evidence, all the tweets where he was talking about the short shorts and short burn of the century and flamethrowers. And the court said, this is evidence of animus that goes to motive that helps support their the scienter requirement here. So, you know, ironically, again, the personality defects of Elon Musk come back to bite him. He got away with it in Unsworth. Will he get away with it here? TBD. But fascinating that um, he helped out the plaintiffs so much. It's just taken a long time for that SEC lawsuit to finally bear fruit in the private context. Yeah, I, I, um, so I, get, I, I totally appreciate and agree with everything you're saying, except uh, as I tweeted out, earlier this week as I have, I have PTSD reading this thing, to be honest. And, um, I'm wondering if, um, you know, how, after the Vern's Vern Unsworth 
debacle. And I'm just wondering if we're going to have another, you know, reflections at the lake moment when this is all done. Like, it couldn't be more obvious what happened. It couldn't be more obvious how in the tank the head of the SEC was for Elon and crafting some novel interpretation of the criticality of, uh, you know, the CEO to the other shareholders as if to say, you know, somebody who commits fraud, um, if prosecuting him for fraud is going to hurt the other shareholders in this one company, uh, we probably don't want to be too hard on him as a, never mind the impact that, that would have on every other company in the market that this head of the SEC is ostensibly charged with regulating. So I read the full, um, decision from the judge on the dis denial of the motion to dismiss. It read very compelling. It's hard to see how you pick up the pieces from that if you're Elon's defense team and put together any kind of um, a winning strategy in the ultimate court. But this is still Elon. He's got the Solar City lawsuit progressing in Delaware. All the other directors have, have settled except him. He decided to stand and fight with Vern Unsworth and succeeded, why, why won't he succeed now? Well, I'm not saying he won't succeed. And I'm saying he's going to have to do it in front of a jury again. And you know, you can, you can, what, what we learned about Vern Unsworth's attorney after what I learned when I researched his career was that I don't think he ever tried a jury case of any magnitude ever. All his big cases that he's famous for settled. Okay. And when, when you saw his performance in the courtroom, it was like, what? This guy is a famous lawyer, you know, this great defamation lawyer. And it was utterly inept. The entire courtroom performance was utterly inept. I don't think that the plaintiff's firm in California suffers from that kind of ineptitude, you know, just based on reviewing the biographies of the people in it. It's someone called Levy and Korsinski. And, um, but, you know, the jury trial gives you a roll of the dice and Elon is a cult figure. As we, I think that certainly this time there won't be anybody on the jury who will go there without objection, at least, who owns a Tesla car or owns Tesla stock. That that won't happen again. And before that, before we ever get to trial in this case, trials, are, I don't even think there's a trial setting yet, okay? They're still, now you, you're past the demotion to dismiss stage. Now there will be discovery, which will go on for months, okay? Probably well into next year, especially with the COVID virus problems. And that'll include document discovery, and it'll include so-called interrogatories and requests for admission, and then depositions. And then there will be fights about discovery with motions to compel. And then finally, you'll get to the stage where the defense will file a motion for summary judgment saying, well, now that all the evidence is in, it's clear that they can't prove their case. Not saying that the pleadings are defective, but saying that it's the proof just isn't there for what they need and that will be denied. And then you'll have a trial setting. And if the case doesn't settle, you'll go to trial. But well before then, sometime, I would guess this year, the Chancery Court will hear the Solar City case. And I think that, that is, you know, really the more existential risk right now to Musk and Tesla. Uh, it's not so much this class action, though. This is a, will wear them down. We know that the uh, the insurance company paid a lot of money to settle for the defendants already in Delaware. Does it have more money left over for California? Have they reached their limit? Or have the directors learned their lesson? I mean, here's here's an astonishing thing about the uh, the arguments that the defense made in this California case. Uh, in front of Judge uh, Edward Chen, 
the defense, the director said, look, we, you know, we, this guy was rogue. We didn't approve the tweet. And, um, the court said, wait a minute, you said he could use Twitter to disseminate company information. You were actively involved in this whole process. You met with him about this before he ever tweeted that and warned him that this didn't sound like any kind of a deal that you would want to approve. Then you slowly dribbled out the truth. And now you're here telling me that he was acting rogue and you didn't approve the tweet. And so the irony here is, since then, how many tweets has Elon Musk made that the board obviously has not approved? The board has not learned its lesson. I, I really question how any uh, you know, employee and director insurance firm could, employee and officer uh, insurance firm, DNO coverage, the director and officer, could, could undertake to insure this board in view of its, its pattern of reckless behavior here, which continues. Sorry, I, I got going there. No, it's understandable. I mean, you know, for as much of a darling uh, as Tesla has been in the ESG space, um, the G has been woefully uh, inadequate, uh, you know, which is governance. And you're pointing out just truly how inadequate that is. The board of directors is uh, silent or even, um, you know, permissive in Elon's activities and the way that he conducts himself uh, through social media, even to this day, you know, even yesterday, and perhaps it was the day before, everything is blending together a bit these days. But um, with his spat with CNN, um, and there was a CNN reporter that was responding to him in social media, and they were having a bit of a tete-a-tete about the ventilators, Elon then went on to block that CNN reporter. And it begs the question of if Twitter is, as stated uh, or has been previously on their website, that the social media accounts are, in fact, official communications, can the CEO be blocking anyone that is potentially a, an interested shareholder uh, or blocking any interested journalist? Uh, and the the directors, board of directors, seem to have no stance on this. I you know, it is um, disappointing, but also reasonable to hear that um, while the sensationalism of the case is certainly there, and that day certainly rings very clearly in people's memories, that the case itself will be prolonged to the point where it might not be such a big risk to, to Tesla as a going concern in the moment. At least that's what I'm hearing from you. This is going to go on and on. Um, probably the winners out of this will be the law firms. And there may be other significant events between now and then that will be more of a risk to Tesla. Um, perhaps the Solar City uh, lawsuits will be that. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you're viewing these legal risks relative to the other risks um, at play for the company and for the value of the equity. Again, of course, with the caveat that none of it matters, right? <laughs> I um, know. <laughs> But, and, and yes, you're, this is the milk carton board of directors. You know, they're 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 all lost. they haven't been heard from in forever. They're they're lost, and we need. And to they're paid handsomely them. to disappear. Yeah, they are. Um, so Tesla, th there are a lot of big risks in in the world of lawsuits. Um, uh, one of them is, I think, the most immediate one is the Delaware lawsuit. We know the directors paid a lot of money to resolve that. And 
now it's Elon Musk alone against the world. And after Unsworth, you know, I, I fully expected the Unsworth case to settle. It didn't. It's, it's clear to me that I was wrong about his mentality. He is just that big a gambler and he'll gamble again and again. And so I expect he'll try to go to trial in Delaware. And um, it's very different. I think we've talked about this to try a case in front of a Delaware chancellor compared with trying a case to a jury of, you know, your peers. Um, the, the Delaware court has puzzled through this case. You've read the decisions it's handed down and um, it will hear the evidence pretty lickety split and it will have a view about all this. And, you know, maybe Elon escapes it. I think his chance of escaping it is not nearly as, as, as good as it was of escaping Unsworth in front of a jury and a, and a lawyer on the other side who never tried a case. But we'll see. It's a big risk. Uh, if he loses that, the, the damages could be substantial. And um, he's all alone there to pay them now. So there are also lawsuits out there. As you know, there are endless uh, uh, lemon lawsuits that Tesla faces I'm per car sold. It's got to be much higher than any other auto company. There are lawsuits involving its full self-driving because it People pay a lot of money for this full self-driving promise and um, it hasn't been delivered and it hasn't been delivered. And now most recently, Musk said famously in, in the last earnings call, I think that, well, actually full self-driving doesn't really mean full self-driving. It means that, you know, we're going to do our best and there might be a few interventions here and there that you're going to have to make. Well, that's quite different from what he had promised. And, uh, and then reinforce the promise with the robo-taxi stuff, you know, assuring anybody that if they bought a car now, it would appreciate in value. All these things create risk, I think. We also know that there's the NTSB leaning hard on the NHTSA to do something about the um, autopilot use and the way it's marketed. Maybe something will come of that. We know that there has been attention to the un, un, excuse me, unintended acceleration events, the sudden unintended acceleration. Uh, possibly something comes of that. So there are a lot of minefields out there. Can Elon Musk dodge every one of them? I mean, we'll see. He evidently thinks he can. And the name of the game has always been, you know, those are problems for tomorrow. Right now, I'm going to survive today. And if I have to do it by creating more problems tomorrow, well, I'll do that. Yeah, I would say the one bull thesis that is undeniable is there will be far fewer lemon lawsuits that derive from Q2 2020 sales. Because <laughs> <laughs> the plant is shut. Um, hey, let's, let's pivot off of uh, beating our favorite dead horse and let's talk about what really sort of drove us to think of having you back on um, today uh we both read your really outstanding most recent seeking alpha article and it was very nice to see you um broach a different topic and display all of the um, thoughtfulness and intellectual uh, capacity that you have on a on a whole new area and many of our listeners would probably be very interested in, in reading it um, talk to us about that article you just put out which involved the summary of a great conversation that grant williams had on his uh, 
I, I don't even know how to say it. Huminar. 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 I'm series. guessing. Yeah. Um, things that, things make, that make you, you go. go hmm. so yeah. Huminar. Yeah. Huminar. Um, he's had a lot of really brilliant people on this series. I think ten or twelve um, Zoom type meetings. It feels like. When yeah, I it's watch been them. a good one. Um, talk to us about the one you selected to write about. Why you selected it? Uh, the article you wrote and and the things you deduced from it. And it frankly was kind of a scary article to read, but I think it was very uh, very thoughtful and and very important for potentially our, our listeners to go have a look at it. Well, as you know, uh, TC in Georgia, I first met Grant back at the time when he contacted some of us, including you and I, uh, you and he contacted you and me to say, you know, would we be willing to talk to him about Tesla because he was putting together that documentary, the electric noise, which you, which came out, I don't know, a year or so ago. And so I, I started reading, the work that Grant does, he puts out a uh, research piece uh, just about bi-weekly or so called Things That Make You Go Hmm. And it's just uh, chock full of ideas and analysis and research. And uh, it was always a terrific read, very lively uh, in its style and uh, well illustrated with graphs and charts and and I enjoyed that a lot. And so I started um, listening to some of the interviews that he does. He does some at a place called Real Vision. And um, they were fascinating too, because he talks, he, he has a he has the greatest Rolodex in the world, if a Rolodex is still a thing anymore. And he has contacts all over the world from all walks of life, especially in the financial world, but elsewhere as well. And um, so I, you know, this, this Huminars, he started emailing those people who subscribe to his, his uh, research reports about the Huminars that he's doing. And essentially it's kind of like, I liken it to the Decameron, you know, the Boccaccio Decameron, where everyone has to leave the city because of the plague and they go hole up in the countryside. And uh, it's, it's like uh, these philosophers are all quarantined in the countryside and Grant interviews all of them and they all tell their story. That's what these are like to me. The one I picked was with someone I've never met named Stephanie Pomboy. And she has been writing a piece called Macro, doing a research called Macro Mavens, right? Where they, they she periodically gives out her research reports to the subscribers. And uh, Grant was interviewing her about a recent one called Trump Cards. And it captured, uh, you know, both Williams and Pomboy are, are gold, I guess you would say, gold bulls. Um, they are, they believe that, uh, and I think they're gold bugs, as it were, not for any, not because they think, you know, you need a gold coin to slip to the, to the border guard or something in the great coming apocalypse. It's more because they think that our monetary system has gone haywire, that the, uh, and we see that especially recently with the Federal Reserve's balance sheet just becoming astronomically large as it buys first treasuries and then corporate debt and now junk bonds. And um, they're, they're concerned that unless uh, currency is tethered to something real like gold, where the quantity of it doesn't vary materially year by year, it's very hard to produce new amounts of it. Um, that that the currency will ultimately become unstable, that you will have something terrible happen, like, for example, hyperinflation, 
and people will suffer greatly from that. And even though a gold standard or something akin to it or some modification of it has many problems to overcome and is far from perfect, they view it as far preferable to the fiat money system that we now have. So I listened to that interview and I thought, I'm going to write about this. I asked Grant if it were okay if I did. And he said, certainly go ahead. And uh, I, I even said, because I don't, it, I'm not an expert by any means in this topic. If he, if he wanted to review the draft before I submitted it for publication, that would be okay. No, he didn't care to do that. He declined, which I think is a pretty great. Uh, so I was free to write as I wished. And, um, and so I tried to capture as with as much fidelity as I could, the conversation the two of them had about their concerns about the way the world is going in terms of interest rates, in terms of the Federal Reserve and its activities. They discussed why it was that they thought interest rates have been so low for so long why it was that the United States has been able to borrow so freely for so long, why it is that they now see that coming to an end, that we may not be able to uh, sell our debt to foreign central banks or foreign holders nearly so easily as we have been able to in the past. Um, they both wondered whether there will be more pressure on the Fed to, to accelerate its purchases in the in the debt markets, they even wondered if we will, if the day will come where the Fed announces it's now going to start buying equities to support the uh, the values in the financial markets, and they both believe that the that coming out of this that we may see a move back to gold. People may decide this system is so unstable. Fiat money has become so out of control that it's time to reconsider gold. And so I wanted to just set that forth. Uh, as clearly as I could, what their thinking was. So that's that's what the article is all about. It's not about Tesla at all. Montana, you lay out the structure and, and some of the meat of that interview uh, really quite well in your article, and it complements the the source interview nicely. I watched the interview a couple of days um, or a day or two before your article came out and, and quite enjoyed it and have enjoyed um really hearing Stephanie Pomboy talk about her view on the world. She was um, had also done an interview on Real Vision with Grant some time ago, maybe six months prior. Um, and, uh, well, gosh, probably even longer than that now, maybe nine months prior. But, you know, a lot of the things that she was foreshadowing at that time seemed to be um, even more, uh, you know, coming to fruition. Um, unfortunately, I mean, as you said, it's a bit of a, a dark scenario. One of the concepts that they discuss at length, and I think you've spent some time kind of thinking about it given your article, um, is the concept around the, the price that we will have to pay for our policy sins. And this is when they start to talk about that that price is coming from the dollar rather than from interest rates and the implications of that. Um, it's something I'm just getting my head wrapped around, to be quite honest, um, thinking about it in that way. Uh, you wrote about it a bit. Can you explain for the listeners what the nature of that discussion was and your understanding of it? Sure, I'll do my best. Let me say I finished writing it and then read the many comments that were made to the article and thought, you know, there, there are still a lot of questions I would like to ask if I ever sat down with um, Stephanie Pomboy and Grant Williams to hash it out. But 
essentially what Pomboy believes is that um, she she talks about how on Wall Street we heard this for years. Oh boy, um, the the uh, we're going to see higher uh, interest rates because of all this spending, and it didn't happen. It was quite the opposite that happened. And she explained why she thought it was quite the opposite that happened and um, has been saying that for a long time. And she said, it's not like, it's not like we don't pay for uh, all this deficit spending we're doing. We do pay, we have to, we pay, but the, 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 what gets punished is the dollar. It's not interest rates. And she talked about uh, how you can see moves in the dollar correlated with um various, you know, crises from time to time over the past decade where the dollar will suddenly decrease in value or increase in value and uh, it gets pushed around the board a lot. And um, now I think what she's saying to me, what was uh, really revelatory was her observation that we've been able to do this for so long because our the buyers of our debt have been in effect vendor financing their sales to us of their exports and particularly China, but this is true in other countries as well. And she feels like that is coming to an end. For one thing, you know, we're seeing uh, more skepticism about globalism. Now, maybe that will pan out, maybe it won't. Maybe she's right, maybe she's wrong. But if it's true that, for example, we become more worried about the supply chains running through China and try to bring some of that closer to home, your China will certainly be less willing to buy our debt in the future. Um, and she feels like we can't raise interest rates. Every time we tried to raise interest rates, there's a huge tantrum in the markets and the Fed has to pull back. And we can't raise them because our deficits are so extraordinary right now. They're going to run this year, she thinks, 20 to 25% of gross domestic product. I think we're getting close to having $25 trillion of federal debt. And um, there's no way to pay that unless you monetize it, unless you use inflation to, so that you can pay back the people who loaned you the money in dollars that are worth less than they were worth before. And that's, I'm not sure if I answered your question but no, you that's do. how I, she sketched it out. That, that's yeah, what I, I heard. Yeah. I interpret it then to be a, a bear case on the dollar. Well, I, I, I interpret it to mean that deglobalization is going to lead to a temporary period of perceived deflation followed by basically, you know, where my republic? Um, yes, this is a, it is a bear case for the dollar. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And it was a fascinating article. And, you know, we all, actually, we, you know, we ask you about it because, um, there is, when you tweeted out the article, there is a world beyond Tesla for all of us. You know, I like to joke with some of my friends, you know, before Tesla, before Tesla charts, I was smart and got things right once in a while. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's you know, kind of foggy like, back in yeah, the memory. Like I, I used to know stuff and people used to like ask my opinion on things and it wouldn't matter and it would occasionally turn out to be right. And we're sitting here with the stock at, you know, $750 a share with the plant closed. And uh, yeah, anyway, you know, before TC, I wasn't an idiot. And um, yeah. And, uh, yes, thank you. And I would say, um, you know, with you, like you're very thoughtful. I know you, I, we've gotten to know each other and I would count you as, as one of my close friends now, given what we've gone through together. Um, you're very well read. You're very thoughtful. You know, the, um, the historical analogy that you pulled earlier in the episode was completely lost on me, which is utterly consistent with the, 
<laughs> with the level of, you know, a deep thinking that you have. And so, you know, there's this whole concept of what are we all going to do? What's Tesla Q going to be beyond this Tesla story? And um, I'm wondering whether this article wasn't the beginning of a new series of articles where you begin to diversify beyond the same old Tesla fraud. I mean, it kind of gets hard with Groundhog Day and pounding your head against the wall uh, and being basically stock price broed into submission uh, every every quarter. I is this the beginning of perhaps a new um, a new series of articles from Montana Skeptic where you share your thoughts, research, and writing style on a variety of topics? It, it may be. Listen, I do want to be clear. I wasn't um, I wasn't endorsing wholeheartedly the arguments that Williams and Pomboy are advancing. I was trying to present them, okay, and to say maybe this argues at a minimum for for having gold in your portfolio, at least a portion of your portfolio, and I outlined the different ways you could do that without recommending any of them. And what I discovered is the comments, there were many comments to this article, and they are from almost an entirely different set of people who, from those who comment on Tesla. And it's a whole new world where this idea of gold is debated passionately with, with strong believers on either side of it. And um, th- it, was, it was fascinating to read all that. I don't have a good sense for who these characters are. Some of them left lengthy comments that I just were even too long to read. Uh, but they feel so passionately about it. And there's a lot of people who are very skeptical of the arguments that um, Williams and Pomboy are making, who feel like it's impractical for various reasons for us to ever return to a gold standard, or who feel like that they're completely misreading the way the markets are going to go, or who feel like the recovery will be sharper than they anticipate, uh, and that interest rates will stay lower much more easily, and we'll have much less problem selling our debt than um, than they anticipate we'll, we, we will have. So. It was fascinating for that reason. Will I do more like this? Yeah, I'd like to. It was fun to do. It's um, it it's it opens your mind to a whole new world. As I said, these are these got people are big thinkers. I mean, as you know, I wrote about Nick Lentz a few weeks back, and Nick is a trader, and his idea of how you play the markets as you look where the big money is moving right now based on all these indications of sentiment and you jump in and you reach out and hold out your hand and try to grab some of the money as it's going by and then you you get the heck out of dodge as quick as you can and that's a fascinating view of the world and he's he's obviously very good at it and even though of course as he acknowledges it doesn't always work sometimes you get you get pummeled and you have to have strategies for you know min- minimizing and controlling your risk but this is this was a much broader bigger picture thing it's really hard to do to step back and say how has the world changed where are we going when did the this become the mission of the federal reserve to start buying corporate debt to start buying junk bonds what does that say about where where we are headed Will we have a difficult time, you know, selling our, our uh, uh, finding buyers for our debt? And what would that mean for us? And, you know, this, they also discussed, as you know, the pension crisis. The pension crisis is enormous. It's been ignored by many people for a long time, not by me, but it's, it's enormous. And it's going to be far more acute as we come out of this coronavirus problem, because everyone's Every government's uh, unfunded pension liabilities are going to mushroom, and they were already big. And you will have states like 
Illinois and New Jersey that will be very rapidly Connecticut at crisis levels, really at crisis levels where they are already asking the government to bail them out. They're already saying, send money to us so we can use some of it to shore up our pensions. And the states that have been more responsible are, are going to say, whoa, now wait, a, wait just a minute. And the localities that have been responsible are going to object to seeing, you know, taxpayer money funneled off to the people who were the most irresponsible in the way they spent it. So they're thinking about these big picture things, how we got here. It's, it's, it's been interesting. And so, yeah, I hope to do more of that. That was a long answer to your question. I wonder, as you were putting that article together, or maybe in hindsight, uh, if there were any parallels, though, to the kind of the world we've been living in as uh, fundamental analysts of Tesla to the way that Grant Williams and Stephanie Pomboy are fundamental analysts of the macro environment. And for so long, kind of hollering and waving their arms saying, look, look, look at where we're heading. The fundamentals say this eventually must be the landing point and, you know, get out of the way and position yourself while you can. And yet, the reality never really catches up with the fundamentals. And what we're seeing now, you know, with just mass amounts of money being printed and pumped into the system that is essentially dwarfing uh, what was done at the time of the global financial crisis, where perhaps is it possible that even in this, you know, some of these larger macro questions, it doesn't actually catch up with what the fund fundamentals would tell you to do? I mean, that's a, that's a, I'm fascinated that you said that because that's exactly what went through my mind. You know, for example, a guy like Jim Grant has been talking about this danger for a long time. And it, it, it sounds like he's a voice crying out in the wilderness because the terrible things have not come to pass that he fears, but they're building. And uh, I do feel it's very analogous to Tesla. The fundamentals are catastrophic. You can see it looking at it. You can see that the company remains dependent on subsidies, which can be evanescent. You can see that the company depends on continued access to capital markets, which ties exactly into, you know, the lax monetary policy we've experienced. And yet, uh, it sustains a narrative and people ignore those fundamental problems and just focus on the story of the day told by the storyteller of, you know, of, 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 of the millennium. And for, for Grant and Stephanie, yes, they're talking about problems that people have wanted to ignore, have pretended aren't there. They are probably derided by many for being wrong for so long. Um, it's one of those things that's, uh, you know, there was a fellow at Seeking Alpha named Jim Sloan, who I, so wise, he's uh, uh, older even than I am. And he wrote a piece called, I think it was called The Hardest Thing. And he talked about how hard it is as the water in the pot gets hotter and hotter to know when to get out. And he talked about someone he knew who was in, um, a family acquaintance who was in uh, Germany as Hitler came to power. And some hesitated and hesitated and could never bring themselves to leave. And others were able to make that hard decision and say, you know what, uh, all these, all this recency bias that I have, uh, or, or anchoring bias that I have, I have to overcome it and get out of here because the situation has changed. And it's like that with markets too. Um, you know, we all in retrospect, we say, oh, I knew that was going to happen. Well, 
the truth is we're all ambivalent. We think it might happen. Do we have the courage of our conviction enough to take steps so that we mitigate our risk if it does happen? Uh, so two, two things come to my mind when you say that, and we'll wrap up here because it's been, um, you know, where does the time go? We could speak probably for five hours and make a podcast, but I'd rather split it into five episodes. If and TC is out of wine. And TC is out of wine. Um, <laughs> That's actually what's really going on. But no, the first thing is I, I watched a video from um, a Venezuelan expat who had escaped from Venezuela early on and was talking about that exact same phenomenon. So I just watching it a few days ago, and you know, how do you leave your home and your possessions? When does it, when does the boiled frog say this temperature is not only too warm for me right now, but is only going to continue to get hotter and how do I jump out? And so it was a very fascinating um, video and I'll, I'll, email it to you when we're done. I think you'd be interested to listen to it. Um, you know, and then the second thing is I would have to say that, you know, outside of the 20 episodes of TC's Chartcast, my, my all-time favorite, not all-time, my 2020 favorite podcast moment was when Jim Grant, who you mentioned, um, was on Dimitri's uh, Hidden Forces podcast. And there's this magical little moment in the middle of it that just struck me as so hilarious and I'll never forget it. Um, but Dimitri basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, says to Grant, you know, you've been banging this drum for 15 years and you've been dead wrong the whole time. What makes it any different, you know? And he looks at him without even hesitation and he says something to the effect of, because it's my turn, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) And it it, it was just so brilliant because, you know, Jim Grant is actually one of the funniest people on Wall Street and he's got such a brilliant turn of phrase and and he's so humorous and so thoughtful and and I think so logical when you hear him and, and for him to be shaking his fists at the oncoming tsunami forever. It must be so, in a perverse way, glorifying to see the wave finally hit the shores. <laughs> you know? He's, uh, he's a magnificent human being. Absolutely. He's a magnificent human being. I've, really I've had the pleasure of meeting him and yeah. um, really I, enjoy his... I have not, but I certainly look forward to um, someday. Well, listen... So I'm just on, to be clear, before we split, we're sure. not going to talk about... We're not going to talk about Tesla earnings coming up then, right? To be so, honest with you, we'll I kind of just time. got Tesla fatigued today. <laughs> Yeah, good. It's good. been a great episode. Why do we got to ruin it yeah. with uh, with trying to look Amen. forward with any kind of fundamental here, analysis on this here. on this POS? Uh, let's just here, go ahead and here. end it on something not Tesla, but still funny and intelligent and uh, and frankly uh, enjoyable. So, yeah, you know. good with Jim Grant, who is uh, so yeah. urbane and so witty and so learned and such a. Con- fine human being. That's a great way to end it. Indeed. So look, great to have you on again. Uh, Another smashing episode that I'm sure our audience will totally love and uh, look forward to having you back uh, in the future. Thanks, George. And thanks, TC. Doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. Imagine Elon as his own lawyer looking to the court for relief. Imagine too, Montana Skeptic representing the plaintiff. Imagine yours truly listening to it all as the bailiff. And the judge says, Gentlemen, will you please approach the bench? And Elon says, "Uh, Montana, uh, did you step in buffalo poop? Uh, You're putting off a stench. Save it for the judge, Musk. At last we go toe-to-toe. Y'all cowboy boots and my Tesla Nikes. Yes, quite a show. Your Honor, this man has tried the court's patience like Gualtieri tried Griselda in the Decameron. Decameron? 
No, not true, Your Honor. At the time, the sentry mode camera was not on. Your Honor, are you really going to let this Falcon Wingnut act as his own defense? Well, he fired all his lawyers. So yes, though things may get tense. Your Honor, Your Honor, I, I request a summary judgment. It's quite clear I'm innocent. But, uh, Your Honor, he had to pay Jay Clayton. Chump change. A mere four billion cents. But then you had to go before Judge Nathan. And, and put on my big boy pants? She was a mere plaything. Your Honor, Musk is charged with serious crimes. But, but, but just like Adam and Eve, I blame it all on Grimes. Grimes didn't send those tweets, Musk. Don't be a coward. But, but, but she told me 420. I, I didn't know. I'm not a coward. I'm a tech nerd. Oh, now I've heard, heard everything. Judge, what do we do? Well, he's won several cases. But maybe now the foot's in the other shoe. <laughs>